Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for November 2019. I'm one of the editors of the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, writer, academic and programmer, Kirsten Stevens. How are you, Kirsten? Oh, wonderful. Good. And we're also joined by another fellow editor who also happens to be an author, a critic and an academic, Cesar Elberon Torres. Welcome back, Cesar. Thank you. Um, I called you an author and that wasn't an abusive name. Um, what did you write? Yeah, I'm an author. I write. Book. I've written fiction. I write literary criticism, essays. Yeah. And a gambling book. And a gambling book. And I'm writing a book on the drug cartels in film and television oh. at the moment. Yeah. Very nice. We'll look forward to that. <laughs> but in the more immediate future, on this month's show, we're looking at Martin Scorsese's Farewell to the Gangster Era, the three-and-a-half-hour epic The Irishman. And then we'll follow that up with a look at a directorial career just beginning when we discuss Mira Folks' dark approach to the pantomime couple from hell, Judy and Punch. Then, with the Actor Awards announced in a few weeks' time, we'll look at the nominations for the Australian Film and Television Awards, which also feature, unsurprisingly, Folks' film debut. We'll end with our recommendations for the month of November and in our bonus segment for patrons of Senses of Cinema, we'll be returning partly to The Irishman as we discuss the long and incredible career of Martin Scorsese. But let's get the show underway. The Irishman tells the story of Frank Sheeran, played by Robert De Niro, and his relationship with two central crime figures, Joe Pesci's Russell Buffalino and Al Pacino's corrupt union leader Jimmy Hoffa, Across that three and a half hours, Scorsese weaves details, events and brutal violence together as we chart Frank's upward trajectory within the mob and the gradual destruction of all those he knew, including his relationship with his family. It ends as a quiet curtain call to an era where men demonstrated their masculinity through violence and betrayal and where women were perceived by these men as merely an adjunct to their own narratives. This film is released currently in some cinemas in Australia and it arrives, arrives on Netflix in about a week. Kirsten, were you blown away for all three and a half hours of this film? I, I actually didn't mind the length of this film. There were moments where, you know, I was checking my watch going, how much longer is this going to be going on for? But uh, overall, I actually quite liked the pacing. But I have a really big question about... I saw this film in a cinema... And I was sitting in quite a comfortable seat. It was a nice um, environment up on the big screen. I don't know it would captivate mm. me if I was sitting at home. I think I would have switched off after Hoffa and then probably not come back to see the end of this film. So my big question is whether or not this film works in where it's destined to be up on the small screen. Yeah, I absolutely agree. This is a purely cinematic experience. In fact... I was prepared. It's like when you're getting an injection and you're like, oh, this is going to hurt a lot, and then it doesn't. It was exactly the same thing. It just flew by. I loved almost every bit of it. As Mark said, I thought it was a great farewell to uh, the gangster film. It is sort of what Clint Eastwood did with The Unforgiven for Westerns of, like a few decades ago. It's a sort of like curtain call for, for the genre. But on Netflix, I'm not sure it would work mainly because Netflix and streaming audiences are used to, like, our bits of, like, binge-watching, right? So this is, like, three episodes. This could work as a beautiful miniseries. It's, it has three acts in a very sort of, like, traditional Hollywood kind of script writing. So I, my guess is that very few people will watch it as one single movie. I, I must admit I thought exactly the same thing. Mm. Um, I was watching it thinking, because it is slow and, you know, I, I kind of, I found the, the beginning very slow and I was thinking to myself, oh, I don't know that this is going to work in the cinema, but in the end I was completely convinced by it. But at home when you've got the distractions, yep. do you get up and you walk around? Because, I mean, I'm telling you, the first hour and a half, there's not a hell of a lot going on um, and it is, I mean, it's kind of interesting, but it's not. I didn't find it emotionally engaging. It's not I was, gripping. It's not, yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but it's fine. And then I found it really, really engaging. But I kept thinking, oh, this is like a miniseries. But as you were saying, I wouldn't get through the first episode. I'd get to the end and go, ah, you know, so what? So what does it mean to watch it at home when you've got all of those distractions that can lead you away um, from something that is very slow and takes its time? And with varying, uh, sorry, 
No, I was going to say I think I agree that the the pacing is unlike other Netflix film offerings even. Yeah. In the way that it is a very cinematic film, it works incredibly well when you've got a captive audience. Where And Scorsese is such a filmmaker in terms of that thinking about cinematically. He uses that incredibly well in this film that I agree the first bit, it's slow, it's not necessarily gripping you to stay tuned in, but it's a very pleasurable cinematic experience yep. to have someone telling, you know, I was comparing this to Tarantino's film that also went for an in, uh, horribly long time. And <laughs> too long of a time. Far too long, and they've released an extended version, and I don't understand why. Um, but that was a, a film that didn't really do anything with its length, whereas Scorsese, he, he is a master of narrative. He keeps you entertained. He keeps you engaged. But it's so very different to how people watch, and even that idea of the miniseries, I think you're right in that you're not going to stay with it to get to the part where it really captivates yeah. you. And, you know, even within that idea of breaking it down into three pieces, it, even though you've got the three-act narrative, it doesn't really work as a single kind of piece. It is too much uh, that cinematic storytelling of yep. the long story that you really need to watch it in one go to appreciate it all. And I think I didn't really, you know, as I was watching, you know, my recommendation is like the first one and a half hours, kind of slow. The last two hours, amazing. Um, and my problem was perhaps for that first hour and a half, I didn't really know what he was doing. Like, you know, it was interesting and fine. And then in the second half, I It all makes sense. Oh, I get why this is slow and I get why we're yep. spending all this time with these people and I get what the structure is and now it all makes sense and I'm so overwhelmed. I was really emotional. And it's a narrative end. puzzle as well in terms of temporalities, Absolutely. like overlapping temporalities. And bizarrely, yeah. I kind of got to the end and thought, I now need to watch it again. I want to go back to the start mm. and do another three and a half hours. Yeah. Because I get it now, and I was so blown away by mm. it. But, you know, if on Netflix, I last an hour, and I think, oh, this is a bit dull. And I think my thing is, you were saying the first one and a half hours was the part that you were wrestling with. I was kind of willing to kind of sit and mm. just see where it went. For me, though, it was after, um, without giving away any spoilers, after the storyline around Hoffer kind of comes to a, a close, Um it seemed to be a number of farewells and endings, yes. which, you know, if I'm sat down at, you know, seven o'clock at night and starting to get later and later, yeah, I, that's the point where I'm going, well, it felt like a close a number of times after that. And it was worth sticking with it right to the end. Yep. It did pay off well, but I don't know that it kept my attention enough that if I hadn't been sitting in that cinema that I would have yeah. stuck yeah. with it. I yeah. guess the question is... A sort of like industrial question. Yeah. Would this movie have been made in any other way other than Netflix financing it? And I guess my and I guess the answer is no. You know, like audiences are used to, you know, like three hour movies if they have like a bunch of superheroes in tights exactly. running around. But not I, I don't think this movie would have been made. And I think it's also a farewell to that epic sort of like great American story narrative. Yeah. I think I think that's a complex question, though, because I think it's both because of Netflix mm. um, that it wouldn't be made anywhere but Netflix. Yeah, perhaps. Well, you know, because <laughs> because I, I think Scorsese, you know, if you went a decade ago, I think he probably could have gotten this project up. Oh, decade, yeah, but not, not today. Ago. Yeah. But it's now because traditional studios are competing against Netflix. Yeah. They're not willing to take a risk on this yeah. kind of film. Netflix, because they're trying to build up prestige, mm. will. I don't think Netflix is going to make another film like this, though. I don't think that mm. they are going to make this style of film for this much money and release it in the way that they have. I don't think they're going to do that for anyone other than Scorsese, and I don't think they're necessarily going to do it again. Yeah, I mean, if you think about last year's uh, Netflix prestige film, Roma, I mean, I'm sure it cost much less than a single scene from The Irishman. Yeah. yeah. yeah? So I think they are going to go with the uh, Quarons, uh, maybe maybe Scorsese with a smaller film. Yeah. But with the smaller films, I think this was like the sort of like rite of passage for Netflix doing big budget productions. Yeah. Hmm? And with this, I mean, 
there is that other flip side to this film, which is not much to do with Scorsese, although, you know, he's suddenly added to the fire by his comments around Marvel and all the rest of it. Um, But that question of what is this releasing strategy that Netflix is doing um, in Australia, most of the exhibitors banded together Mm. to refuse to screen it. In fact, you know, we went and saw it at the cinema, um, but that was the one cinema chain in our state. And in fact, for much of the country, um, that was actually screening this film. Most of our major cinemas have refused to because it's going to be on Netflix at the end of the week yeah. um, rather than maintaining a 90 or 120 day And because it's window. three and a half hours long, so it takes up a lot of screen time. Yeah, yeah well, I think it's an mm-hmm. easy one for them to kind of... But they, they've pushed back on a number of other ones as well, The King, um, Marriage Story, um, a few other films that are are destined to have that immediate sort of uh, theatrical and then um, Netflix release. Yeah. And there is that real question about Netflix trying to have it all, trying to have the prestige, trying to have the theatrical um, release as a way of gaining credibility that their films are artistic, not just kind of um, glorified telemovies. Yeah, yeah, the dumping ground for kind yeah. of the, the, the low... So they're very much engaging with that, but it is causing major issues for the industry and kind of diminishing the chance that a film like this is going to be made outside of Netflix ever yeah. again. Yeah. And what do you think? Sorry. Go on. And I guess the next sort of like stamp of approval will be the Academy Awards. Yeah. Not that they matter much, but I mean, last year, in all honesty, uh, Green Book wasn't <laughs> half the movie that Roma was, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was a sort, or any of the other only nominees. only able to drive people around. That would have been better. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so what will happen with The Irishman, which yeah. is a Oscar movie kind of thing, in well, that like old, so like damn his name, but Weinstein kind of like Miramax. And this like is definitely Oscar part father. of the strategy. Yeah. Netflix, I mean, Netflix have been pushing films into uh, festivals. They've got some partnerships with festivals now. Um, They're absolutely going after Oscar cred. They're very interested in this prestige at the moment. And Roma and that example, there was definitely a pushback by a Mm -hmm. lot of the Academy Mm -hmm. against wanting to support. But now you've got Scorsese. So it's it's going to be a really interesting Oscar race to see... Who wins? Old guard Scorsese, who, you know, granted hasn't really had nods, um, many kind of successes within the Academy. Generally, there's been lots of times when he's kind of been passed over. But you do have this kind of master, old school, cinephile Mm. director versus the new technology that everyone's really uh, scared around what happens if they become part of the establishment as well in terms of that uh, American filmmaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, if if we're talking Oscars, Joe Pesci. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I swear to God, that man is incredible in that film. Great comeback, huh? What a total scumbag and just such a beautiful, fantastic performance. And ageing, you know, like... Yeah. You believe the ageing in Pesci. Yeah. I mean, De Niro, yeah, you sort of like buy it because you buy almost everything De Niro does. But Pesci, he's, he's just such a complex character. And some very surprising minor roles. I was blown away by Ray Romano. He's terrific, mm. yeah. Everybody loves Ray and I love him in this movie. <laughs> he's just fantastic as a mafia lawyer. Yes. He's yes. just wonderful. And, and of course, uh, you know, we have to mention the fact that there is a kind of de-aging process that goes on in this film mm. so that we've got a kind of younger version of De Niro and of Pesci. Um, how did we find it? Because... The one that I bought least, like as as you said, says uh, uh, Pesci, it works really well. There's a few characters, um, the toupee that... Uh, <laughs> Ray Romano wears yeah. not so much, um, a number of other characters as well. But for me, the one that really, it didn't quite work for me with De Niro. Um, when he was made, I think 
I think part of this is as well is that we have seen younger De Niro yeah. on screen and yeah. he didn't right. look like a younger De Niro. He didn't look like right. Vito Corleone yeah. arriving yeah. from Italy. Exactly. And <laughs> so I think knowing what he looked like as a younger actor and not seeing that on screen was part of it. Um, another part of it was the fact that he did look like he had Botox in some of those younger scenes. Yeah. But the big one for me was that the voice didn't change. And again, mm. because we've heard De Niro as a younger actor on screen, the fact that he sounded the same age, you know, he put a little bit more of a quiver into his voice as he got older. And I think the getting older worked better than the getting younger. Yeah. Mm. But the getting younger, he didn't seem more youthful. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised how, because I thought, oh boy, this is going to be awful. And I actually didn't find it distracting. Like, I mean, the the thing is that that whole process is, is cognitive in terms of, you're right, you look at De Niro and you're like, you don't exactly look like the young De Niro because I know what that looks like. Um, and yet I didn't find it distracting once I accepted this is the way that De Niro looks here now and that was fine. Same with Pesci. Um, same sort of with Al Pacino. But but the thing is you do start to interrogate every image, like how am I looking at this and is this, so, is this working? Um for me, as I've already suggested to you before we started taping, you know, it was a bit like explosion of the toupee factory so that you could see that these people were, I mean, they are supposed to be in their 40s and 50s at the very least. And they've got this kind of, Al Pacino's hair is like, it's got its own postcode. It's huge and enormous and lustrous and really kind of, there's not a grey hair to be seen in that man's head. And yet you can tell by the way, even that he walks or he stands sometimes, sometimes posture gives mm. the age away. So, I mean, maybe it's a kind of dumb thing to do because, you know, the film is fantastic and I really adored it. But but it was a visual thing where you, you're kind of engaged with how is this technology working and where can I find the faults? Yeah. And I think probably because we've got a history with De Niro and these actors. And Pacino. Yeah, yeah and Pacino, like, you know, if you come in fresh and not maybe knowing much about them, you might just accept it, I think. But I think that, like, just to wrap up, I guess, the fact that there's very few speaking roles for women mm -hmm. has been criticized widely. I am of the view that that's exactly the point, mm -hmm. you know? And for people that claim that Scorsese has been a misogynist kind of filmmaker, blah, 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 from Raging Bull to Casino, Goodfellas, of course, The Irishman, he's talked about, as Marx said at the beginning, a very specific kind of masculinity, which is overpowering and overbearing and just uses women as objects, basically, as so, stand-ins for you know, the wife, the daughter. My feeling around this is it cuts two ways. On the one hand, you have... Scorsese is a director who, through his filmmaking, makes a critique that this is the kind of world that was created in these spaces, that it was a particular type of masculinity that sidelines mm. feminine voices. Um, and I, to an extent, I agree with that. There is the other side of it, though, going, you know, you do that in one film, another film. How many times do you need to do this without taking another critical lens? You know, does it always need to be but I think he this kind of thing? Up. And yeah. I'm I'm not necessarily criticizing Scorsese for this. I don't. I think I think he's a good filmmaker and someone that I'm interested in the way he tells stories. I think it's also hard when this is the way that stories have been tell, told pervasively yeah. across the medium. Sure. Yeah, and so you know, his unique criticism kind of gets lost in the fact that this is the only way that we've seen these stories told. Mm. So there could have been... I, I would love to see a Scorsese film where he goes, well, actually, there are women in these worlds who have voices and what, what would yeah. that look like? But I think if we think about this film as a curtain call on the genre, then I'm very happy to be done yeah. with needing to tell these stories where women's voices are yeah. overtly silenced. 100% what, what I took away from that film by the end was what a waste of a life. These people have wasted their lives. They've died in these terrible ways. I mean, Scorsese does consistently just remind you, oh, he's the guy that got shot in the head and he's the guy who walked over here and got, you know, 15 bullets. So he's constantly telling you all of these this people. This leads nowhere. <laughs> yeah, this goes absolutely nowhere. And yet it was incredibly nostalgic. 
Well, well yeah. it was not. It was nostalgic, but it wasn't. I didn't think that it made it look like it was cool. I thought at the end. It's oh, just this stupid old man who had destroyed yeah. his relationships with all of his daughters. Now, there is that one sequence where not the Anna Paquin character, but a different daughter says something like, we don't speak because we couldn't because we knew what the consequences would be if we opened our mouths. Yeah. And because of him, he has silenced his entire family. They don't get to talk yeah. because they're afraid of the, the man that he is and the people that he knows. So that sense of him in this kind of old age home, you know, is just... Begging, a, begging, basically begging uh, a, a carer, yeah. a female carer, to listen to him. Yeah. Which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Mm. And But, I, I just found it, at the end, it's like, you were a wasted generation. You threw everything away. What a pack of losers. And, and the fact that Anna Paquin is silent yeah. is, is the sign that... She's where we go next, you know. Yeah. Like, like that generation is done. And she I mean, knew what take, was what. Yeah, mm. she did. Yeah. And I take your point. Like, you know, in the broad scheme of cinema, yeah, it is absolutely true. Mm. Not enough female but, 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 but I think that Scorsese has had obviously, you know, a vast majority of his characters have been male characters. But I mean, I know it's a very old movie, but Alice doesn't live here anymore. I think Ellen Burstyn's character is fantastic. I think. Um, Bira Farmiga's character in The Departed is a sort of like a pivotal role as well. Uh, Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York, I think it's a great role as well. It's, I mean, it's like sort be, of like a pivotal role. This will be something that we can return to when we come back to, yeah. to talk about Scorsese as yeah. well. But, you know, as I'm not disputing that he's a director with a, a lot of scope and has told some really great stories, but it's also, you know, when you can pick and choose exactly the, the yeah, couple yeah, yeah, of characters. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a fault that's not his alone. It's a fault that has expanded across a whole yeah. lot of filmmakers where I mean, you can have a really amazing female character in these films, but, but you, know, one. you can put them on one hand yeah, yeah, absolutely. by the end of a career. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But, I mean, I think we're all in agreement that three and a half hours of worth it. It's worth it. Yeah, blackout, yeah. the room, uh, cancel all distractions, yeah. Yeah. stick with it. Don't yep. watch it like you watch the rest of Netflix. No. Exactly. And if Parasite hadn't been released this year, this would be my film of the year. I think it would I be think. mine too. I'm in agreement. So if you want to add to our discussion of The Irishman, we would love to hear from you. So just head to our Facebook uh, page at facebook.com slash cinema and just leave a comment there on our episode thread. Judy and Punch is the feature debut of Australian screen veteran Mira Folks. Shot in Monsalbert, uh, the film reimagines the classic children's pantomime, Punch and Judy, moving beyond the puppets to the humans, played by Mia Vashikoska and Damon Harriman, who are pulling the strings behind the scenes. And the story it tells is one that is far darker than the punchy, smashy puppet shows that many of us recall from our childhoods. Reimagining these puppet scenarios in light of more contemporary views on domestic violence, the film takes a critical look at what happens when this violence moves beyond the stage. Following the character of Judy, dealing with her drunkard husband Punch, the film traces her trials and tribulations as the couple tries to unsuccessfully resurrect their past theatre success, derailed by Punch's drunkenly antics. Following another drinking session that sees Punch toss the couple's baby out a very high window, Punch epitomises his name and beats Judy to near death. Believing both wife and baby dead, Punch deflects blame onto his two elderly servants, capitalising on the superstition of their small hometown of Seaside to whip up witch hysteria and escape punishment. Judy, however, has other ideas, returning to seek vengeance on her husband and reclaim her place within her home. The film has some nice points of catharsis um, and an interesting commentary on superstition and the mob and the way that this kind of derails uh, considered justice. What was your takeaway from this, Mark? Oh, that's a moan of I don't know. Um, there is a lot that I really, really, really like about this, but it was kind of everything that I liked about it was kind of intellectual and even then I think some of the intellectual stuff is a little bit not that great um, I, I, I found myself a bit dissatisfied I can't think of a better pitch 
you know, watching the film, I thought this is the perfect pitch. We yep. take Punch and Judy, you know, this kind of thing that children watched that was just nothing but domestic violence, like nuts. And taking that as a parable to look at kind of domestic Me violence. And yeah, Me too, too, era, and, stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of entrenched attitudes towards, you know, masculine kind of abuse and all of that sort of stuff. Fantastic. And yet I found it a bit didactic. I found the tone not quite working. You know, there, there, are, there is indeed some fairly brutal death that sometimes gets played for comedy, yeah. which, which I get because here's the thing. That's mm. what Punch and Judy did too. It also played that violence for comedy, but maybe the, the, the concept doesn't translate to film. Um, there are things I liked. There were, but I, I can't say that I liked the film much at all. Cesar? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a film that is very conceptual, mm. but not in a, this is not an endorsement, on the contrary, but you don't really see that on the screen. Mm. You know, you don't get that extra layer of discourse or interpretation. It's like, yeah, these shows are violent, and it's too much of a commentary on the current situation around gender politics in a you know, far away time, and it doesn't quite link. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was I was a bit disappointed by it. I got distracted by the. Um, I mean, it's supposed to happen in England, and I got distracted by the trees in Montsalvat. I was like, no, that's a. Because <laughs> I'm into into uh, so like indigenous trees to Australia, and I was like, no, that's an indigenous tree to Australia. That's an indigenous <laughs> flower to Australia. I just got very distracted by the by the film. Uh, I thought the use of music was very interesting. It uses synthesizers, and it's a bit. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of um, um, Suspiria, Goblin's music in Suspiria, yeah. a little bit. Mm. Kind of so, heavy on the musical montage, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I thought it was a good idea that sometimes felt a little bit underdeveloped and undercooked. I think uh, Mia. How do you pronounce? Bashakovska. Bashakovska. I think she was. I think she was fantastic. I mean, but she's always, almost always fantastic, mm. even as Alice in Wonderland in a very failed mm. uh, Disney adaptation. She's great. Yeah. You know, like, for, I remember the first time I saw her uh, opposite Gabriel Byrne in uh, HBO's In Treatment. I was just, she was like 15 or 14. I was just blown away by, it's like, who's this young actress? You know, it was like 12 years ago. Yeah, she's great. She's just, she's just great. But yeah, it's a, it's a failed movie. Yeah, I agree. I I really loved the idea and I think as much as anything it was the fact that it kind of derailed itself by trying to deal with a little bit too much and yeah. it ended up being a very superficial film. Yes. It made a number of kind of digs at and I like the premise of what if this was actually happening not just the and the the question um that the little girl asked which is why does punch always win? Um, and if you just taken that kind of idea and go, okay, so still playing it, perhaps not taking quite a serious tone, playing it for laughs, what if it was just a battle between, you know, Punch is such an unlikable character in this film. He's just, you know, horrible in every possible way. Um, it could have been quite an interesting film if it was just kind of a, um, a revenge kind of violent film, but bringing in the whole witchcraft thing and the superstition yeah. in the town. There was just a, a few things too many for them to really give depth to any of it. And it became this, it, you know, this is something that happens across, what, the space of a week? Yeah. And it's sort of a bit strange that she's able to rally an entire group of people she only just met, yeah. invade the town and change their minds with one big display. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it just didn't ring true in terms of, you know, this could have been if you'd extended out the timeline, you know, yeah. had her go away for a long time and come back yeah. many years later to yeah. to really seek vengeance. Yeah. That could years have been a later. really yeah, yeah. Not cathartic, yeah. interesting kind of... Um, film but as it was it all just the condensed timeline the how quickly things got resolved and the ease with which it was all done just and even the yeah. you know at the point where you move out of seaside which is this sort of corrupt town and as you say you know witch trials and all that sort of stuff and she goes off to 
you know, the, the band of outsiders, the witches. And even they, like, I should have felt like I bonded, felt closer to them. And they're just, it was like a great big kind of, I don't know, no offence to all our vegan friends, um, but it was like a big vegan picnic, like, oh, look, we're, we all are aware of things, even though they're chopping up rabbits and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it was just that sense of them being really attuned to nature, man, and kind of this really excessive kind of, and they keep saying, like, contemporary. we're outsiders. Yeah. Behold, mm. they don't really understand us, do they? We really believe in nature and the world, like, you know, thank you for your lesson. You know, it was like enough already. So I couldn't connect to them either, despite the fact Virginia Gay is in that. She's amazing and I love her, but, you know, I, I, I kind of couldn't support them either. Even with, you know, I know we were meant to identify the most with Judy, um, but even there I I didn't think as amazing as um, Wojciechowska's performance was, um, I didn't the, the character that I probably connected the most with was clearly the emotional touchstone that you were meant to, which was the constable, mm. um, played by Benedict Hardy. Um, but even then he was just so ineffectual. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he was clearly there to be the yes, we're as outraged as you are kind of character. Mm. We can identify with your emotional response to this situation. But even then it was just sort of he was a bit of a useless character. Yeah. Ultimately, he wasn't able to actually affect anything in the narrative. Yeah. He was just there to observe on our behalf. And yeah. yeah there you was know, I think missed opportunities. You know what I really wanted more of? I mean, less speechifying. There's a lot of speeching. Like yeah. people are doing a lot of here here is the ideas and here is what we're talking about. Did you notice? Um, I just wanted more puppetry. Yeah. Because those early sequences where they're just using the puppets, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, you can tell so much through puppetry. Yeah. Yeah, and that was lost, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and particularly for the play on that idea, it would have been great to see much more of yeah. the onstage, offstage, onstage, offstage okay. kind of comparisons, which it's obviously trying to make, but it kind of goes, we've showed you one show, and now look at their real life and look yeah. at the similarities. Yeah. Um. It would have been great to see that kind of actually developed a bit more, because as yeah. you say, those those stage, uh, the theatre performances are really brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and there's some good examples. I, mean, I, I kept thinking about being John Malkovich, mm. yeah. and how Spike Jonze very effectively links puppetry to this crazy story he had. So uh, yeah, there's and, and it's visually stunning. I have visually to, amazing. Yeah, I have to say though, I did really loved that final end scene, which seemed a bit of a tack-on because it sort of seemed to wrap up quite nicely um, at the point where um, they're in the yard of the house, all the all the outsiders are now living yeah. in the manor. But there was something quite enjoyable about watching um, Harriman as he's, in the insane asylum. So and yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. He, he's terrific. I mean, but I, I must admit, like, I, I was... I've now watched it a couple of times and I think I was more kind of into it in, in earlier on the second time around, but it does just lose its way. And I think it is at the point where she heads off to the outsiders um, area and that last set piece, you know, on the gallows, I just think is, is really terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really like, I, I'm here to, to, speechify and, and tell you what I think and we should all be nice to each other, don't you think? And it's kind of a little bit like, well, you know, thank you. Is this the end of like play school or Sesame Street or something? It, it was just too <laughs> obvious. It is also, I found, a quite oddly paced film. Yeah. Um, and thinking about like the setup seemed to actually go for three quarters of the film. Yeah. And that whole thing of going to the outsiders and coming back really only takes the last like third of the film kind of thing and it it seems a lot of setup for quite a poor payoff yeah. in that mm, kind yeah. of way less tai chi can i suggest can we have less tai I, chi that was such a random yeah. random mm. thing oh but they're so in tune with everything <laughs> because yes. they're outsiders kirsten yeah so, all right oh. fine yeah i mean I, I keep coming back to how awesome the premise is i love the idea um i just don't think the execution of it was solid enough tonally how did you cope with that because i mean there is baby death played for laughs um which well, i mean am i might i'll be interested to see um i know that says has a very different reaction for me but i'm a classic kind of 
um, cinema goer in that I tend to be more outraged when you kill an animal than when you kill a baby. Me too. That's why but we don't have children. they killed both of them, so yeah. I was outraged. <laughs> we don't have kids, so we yeah. want to look after the pets. Exactly. All right, the, the, only, the only person with a, a child in this room, Cesar. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah I, it was traumatic. <laughs> really? Yeah, and, and, and I mean, uh, we're going to move on to the actor. Sure. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of dead babies in Australian cinema recently. <laughs> I mean, just yeah, traditionally, been. Australia and children have not had a great relationship. We either, like, make them get lost, they die. Yeah. Generally speaking, children is yeah. not a sa- uh, Australia is not a place, safe place for children. No, in don't raise children here. Take them elsewhere. <laughs> says uh, giving me the death glare um, yeah I mean I, I did find it tonally so sometimes it's very intensely and brutally violent and yet even the point leading up to the death of the child this isn't a big spoiler and certainly if you've seen Punch and Judy that baby got smacked around a hell of a lot in that in that puppet show as well um, you know it is a kind of bashy smashy whoops a daisy kind of uh, tone to some of the violence that occurs. And, you know, I, I kind of didn't mind that tone, but that sort of flippant absurdism didn't seem to fit with the, and by the way, like, you know, be nice to women and don't beat them up. Yeah, you know, I think, in this, I think they needed to choose one way or the other. They either needed to go, this is going to be a smashy, punchy, and yep. everyone's going to get involved, yep. and we're going to have some yep. catharsis because the women are going to kick ass. Oh. That Which was, so much better. I think, the, what the premise was making us kind of expect and the way that they played for laughs some of this violence. Because even, even the scene that's clearly meant to be at the, the hinge point where Vershakowska gets severely beaten um, by her husband, it's still kind of comic. Because yeah. it's kind of, oh, whoops, what did I just do? Yeah. Um, and I think they needed to either go, okay, that's the tone, in which case her vengeance is going to be a similar tone and the whole thing is going to be a little bit, you know, all Heightened in. and silly and yeah. absurd, sure. Um, or it needed to be, that needed to be a far more serious and the, the death of the baby needed to be a far more, no, this is what it's really like. We're not on stage anymore. We're not watching puppets exactly. beat up each other. These are people and it needed to be far, far more shocking those yeah. moments of violence, yeah. if it was going to maintain that kind of didactic tone. Yeah. And that's where I think it got it a little bit off. Yeah, 100%. More than a little bit, I would yeah. say. <laughs> well, it would be great to hear what you all think about uh, the violence and the um, smashiness of uh, Judy and Punch. So head to our Facebook page to leave us your thoughts. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe. Highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition. So we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the cost of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you were to subscribe to the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast, so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Census Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Census, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work that they do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Sense of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring you the journal throughout your film year. The Actor Awards are, for those outside of Australia, a kind of combination of both the Oscars and the Emmys. And the very best of film and television is celebrated together in one big ceremony at the end of the year. This year's nominations cover some really impressive Australian cinema, from Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, which is leading the pack with 15 nominations, and Anthony Morass's uh, Hotel Mumbai and David Michaud's Henry V drama The King, uh, scoring 13 each. It's certainly a huge field. And other notable nominations, like, for example, Damon Harriman's nominations in basically every single character uh, category that we have on offer. 
and actors such as Mia Vashikovska or Dev Patel, Hilary Swank has got a nomination, Hugo Weaving, Miranda Tapsell, they've all scored acting nominations. So let's work our way through some of these key categories, Kirsten. I know that certainly you and I have seen almost the majority of these films. Um, up for best film, we're looking at Hotel Mumbai, Judy and Punch. Um, guess we're not getting behind that one. Um, the King, The Nightingale and Ride Like a Girl, you, and uh, Top End Wedding. You got a you got a favourite out of that lot? Oh, well, I mean, I there's many of these films that I really enjoy. Um the question of which one do I think should get actors' best film is a very different question. Um, something that I've noticed is, I guess with the, the best film category, we've got a fairly even split between ones that are very Australian stories to ones that are far more international stories. But even then, um, what I've noticed across the entire selection of films this year is just, I, and I, I think it's maybe the Netflix impact, which is how many of these stories are increasingly international genre stories or aimed at an international audience and not particularly uh, – not that I think films need to be absolutely nationalistic or distinctively Australian, but the fact that most of these are aimed at an international audience rather than necessarily communicating to Australians. Yeah. Um, you know, with that in mind – I really enjoyed The King, but I do not think it should get oh, actor. Did you really? I, I liked it, but I liked it in a kind of, I was watching it on Netflix, you know, a couple of bottles, of, no, glasses of wine in. Um, so, you know, as... <laughs> made as, it all better. <laughs> as, as a kind of just, I love, like, historical, you know, war, sword yep. fighting kind of films. So, you know, I was perfectly happy watching a bunch of people run around in armour and whack each other with sticks. Um, <laughs> but I find it really fascinating that this was even nominated in actor categories yeah. and it has caused a lot of controversy around, you know, is this an actor award film? I, I mean, this is where, where you know, kind of one of the, the issues with Australian cinema is, like, we have to internationalise or else we don't have an industry. So <clears throat> not all of our films will kind of say something like Top End Wedding, which is really very Australian, really kind of indigenous. But it's also not. It's also, it's also you know, an internationalised... But that, that yeah. I do appreciate. I yeah. think, you know, that manages that balance well. Of it's telling an Australian story. Telling an story, yeah. Australian story in a way that other people are going to enjoy. Mm. Um, but I'm thinking about, you know, like Judy and Punch and the King, um, where these are ostensibly very English yeah. stories, which I thought we'd kind of moved away from. I thought we'd yeah. moved away from the need to... You know, I have less of an issue like going Hotel Mumbai, I think, is something that resonates very much with Australia. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, Judy and Punch and the King and that kind of very British storytelling. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> for what it's worth, I really hated the King. Really? I hated it. I was so bored. And I love those Shakespeare plays, you know, Henry the Fourth, one and two, and Henry the Fifth. They're some of my favourites. It is such an incredible story. <laughs> and I thought this was the most boring load of nonsense. I thought <laughs> little Timmy Chalamet looked like he was wandering around looking for his bloody earbuds for his iPod. Like, oh, where am I? <laughs> I so agree, yeah. He's always got this grumpy, like, I'm the king look on his face. Like, grow up, you tosser. <laughs> I, I really, really didn't like it at all. Falstaff is one of the great characters, you know, in all of Shakespeare. This isn't, you know, a Shakespeare adaptation. It's a historical adaptation. But even the Falstaff character, played by Joel Edgerton, kind of doesn't really do anything. I was so disappointed. What about Pattinson doing the French accent? Oh, and Pattinson <laughs> doing the, oh, Lord. But see, we've got nice catharsis there because he just, like, utterly fails at the end. Yeah, well, so does the film. <laughs> <laughs> Although the Ashen Core sequences are terrific. Um, mm. Out of these these nominees, though, um, and I have seen all of them, I think probably The Nightingale is it's... my favourite out of them, even though I think it's a little bit problematic. I think it's quite problematic, but I agree. I think out of all of these films, it's really... Uh, all of the other films are perfectly nice films mm. to varying degrees. You know, I don't really think that any of them are standout winners except for mm. The Nightingale. I mean, yeah. I 
I also quite enjoyed Ride Like a Girl. Yeah. But it's not a particularly amazing cinematic work. No, it's not. It's just, a, you know, it's a film that's thoroughly enjoyable. Most of these films I would put down as an enjoyable watch. Mm. Even though we just kind of picked pieces, Judy and Punch, yep. it's certainly a watchable film. It's yeah. something you can sit down and, without too much thought, enjoy. And for me, that's not the kind of film that is the best film winner yeah. for the actors. And I think out of all of these nominations, only The Nightingale is something that's really doing something more cinematically. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I really enjoyed Hotel Mumbai. I thought that was a really tremendous, very exciting, terrible film. Um, I mean, terrible, about terrible events. Um, but I found that a really, really complex, really interesting um take on those events that occurred um, in in Mumbai um, a bit over 10 years ago. Um, so I, I like that very much. But again, you know, coming back to what you suggested earlier, I mean, you know, it's, it's an Indian story um, with a couple of Australians in it and a couple of Americans in it and a bunch of um, kind of Indians in it, at least. Um, and, and I found that. But it, it, it's very much a kind of, you know, it's a kind of action cinema centred around a really terrible event in the same way that you can look at... Peter say, Greengrass. Peter Greengrass. Was, what was it, July... Was it July 22? 22, yeah. Um, you know, it's something quite similar to that. Um, and I did have a real soft spot for Top End Wedding, which I really loved. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a really sweet, beautiful film, but but of those, I think I'm going for The Nightingale. Um, we also have in the actors a, a kind of separate thing for independent film, which we uh, award to something that is less kind of big budget, usually not the co-production, um, and is a, a kind of smaller, rougher kind of film. Um, we've got a couple of nominations for that. Uh, one this is actually where I'm far more excited about the films. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> Damn. I, I am excited about one. Um, so the nominees are Acute Misfortune, Book Week, Buoyancy, Emmy Runner, and Sequin in a Blue Room. So, so what are you excited by? I I think I, I I have to admit I've seen all of these except for Acute Misfortune and that's my favorite. Ah, that's interesting. <laughs> that's I, brilliant. I mean, again, I'm not sort of I I far more than I mean, I've enjoyed a lot of the films this year that are nominated. Um but I was I you know, I really enjoyed watching Book Week um as a you know, it's that's again a film that I think is very much um, an Australian story told for an international consumption because it's kind of uh, just Australian enough but not in a dissociating kind of way for people who aren't familiar. It's premised around Book Week, which I think is a New South Wales thing where people celebrate books for a week in schools, dress up as characters, clearly, um, and around a sort of failed author who's... Um, very self-destructive in his relationships, in his drinking. And it's a kind of story that isn't particularly complex, isn't particularly, um, you know, aiming at a big... It's just a nice little contained story told well. Um, and it's something that I haven't seen a lot of in Australian cinema for a while because it always seems to be trying to be very, very Australian or very big international, and these just simple human stories is not something we're necessarily seeing a lot of, and so I enjoyed seeing that. Buoyancy, which is, again, another far more international story, but made with um, Australian connections. Um, I found it quite a contemplative kind of film. Um, I did have some questions about how quickly... The main character turns to murder and yeah. how accomplished he is yeah, at that. I that too. <laughs> um, but there's definitely things there that I found thought provoking and interesting. Um, Emu Runner, I think, is a wonderfully sweet story. Um, and Sequin in a Blue Room as well. Um, you know, another kind of story that we're not seeing a lot of, and it was great yeah. to see different kinds of storytelling. So, all of these films, again, I'm probably not going, I, I think that they're more without having seen Acute Misfortune, I think these are all far more competitive with one another than I would have said for the best film category. Yeah. I mean, I <clears throat> I haven't seen every single one of these. I haven't seen Book Week. I've seen Acute Misfortune, which I really loved. I think that's a... And, you know, I know it's nominated here for a best indie film. It could easily be um, in, the, in the best film category. I mean, that is a really interesting, really complex, 
really fascinating film based on true events about the relationship between this very young journalist who's about 19 uh, and this kind of really atrocious human being, uh, this uh, artist uh, by the name of Adam Cullen, both real people. Um, and it's this very, very complex and often frequently abusive and very tense relationship that they have. Um, I really loved Acute Misfortune that, you know, I'm certainly going to be behind it um, in that category. I mean, I did see Buoyancy and it, you know, I feel terrible about saying this about Buoyancy, but Buoyancy is one of those films where I look at it and say, you know, I'm glad you told that story. And, and I've seen a lot of films like that that are kind of certainly about very important and difficult issues. This one is about kind of basically slavery on fishing boats um, in Thailand. But as you say, it just, it's the kind of slow contemplative, like I'm being mistreated and now I've got my revenge, a kind of story that I think we've seen a lot and I was a little bit disappointed with that. Should we move on quickly to Best Direction? So we've yep. got... Um, Anthony Maras for Hotel Mumbai, Mira Folks for Judy and Punch, David Michaud for The King, and Jennifer Kent for The Nightingale. Um, I do think it's probably going to be Jennifer Kent, but I mean, it's so problematic this film that there's a is, there's a big it? part of me that um, I think it, <clears throat> I mean, I think if you're looking at skill in direction, then it's probably going to be Jennifer Kent. Yeah. But I do wonder who, because this is obviously something like the Academy Awards where people vote, and this has been such a divisive film, um, even though I think Jennifer Kent is a forerunner for this, I also wouldn't be surprised at all if she doesn't get it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I really loved The Nightingale, but I think the last 20 minutes just it feels like it undoes everything the entire film was about. So, you know, I, I feel... I, I did really like that film a whole lot. Um, and so probably out of them, you know, I think The Nightingale is at least a film with some intelligent, thoughtful ideas. It is working through things in a, in a fairly complex way, even if it biffs the ending, as, as from my perspective anyway. I think she was pretty amazing. When we're looking at the best actors and actresses, is there anybody that you're particularly keen on? I'll quickly rip through the nominations. Timothy Chalamet for That's your favourite, right? The King. <laughs> Oh, Timmy. Like, where? Oh, I want to have a look at a meme. That's what he's doing. Um, <laughs> Bakali Ganambar uh, for The Nightingale, Damon Harriman for Judy and Punch, Dev Patel for Hotel Mumbai and Hugo Weaving for Hearts and Bones, and for Actress, Nazanin Bonyadi for Hotel Mumbai, Ashling Franciosi for The Nightingale, Teresa Palmer for Ride Like a Girl, Miranda Tapsell for Top End Wedding, and Mia Vashikovska for Judy and Punch. You got favourites in there? Um, I have favourites, whether or not they're really in. <laughs> In line for a win, but um, uh, Ganambar. Um, he's so good. Yeah. <laughs> he's really great. Um, I haven't seen Hearts and Bones, but you know, when you're talking Hugo Weaving, I'd be surprised if he was. I want, we'll get to the supports, and that's who I'm hoping is winning um, um, that film. And even though I, I think it's possibly unlikely, but Miranda Tapsell was just brilliant. <laughs> I, I, yeah, for, for the women, Miranda Tapsell, I agree. I think that she, of them, I think that she is the best. I mean, I must admit, watching Ride Like a Girl, I keep forgetting how good Teresa Palmer is. Yeah, I also kept... She looks a lot like um, Kristen Stewart in that yeah. film. Yeah, and you just keep... I keep forgetting every time I see her in something, I think, oh, that's right. Teresa Palmer's like one of our best actors. Yeah. And then you sort of forget, and then you see her again, and I'm like, but you're really good. <laughs> and I think that she deserves more, but I, I too, would go with Miranda Tapsell. She's so just charming and funny and, you know, really, really, I just love her to bits. I do think probably Damon Harriman or Dev Patel for the best actor. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think Dev Patel is also, he's a bit like um, um, Teresa Palmer. Every now and again you watch a film with him and you think, actually, you're really freaking good at this whole acting business. Um, so quickly, how about we just wrap up with a couple of supporting actors here? Yep. So the men, Joel Edgerton for The King, Damon Harriman again for The Nightingale, Andrew Lurie for Hearts and Bones, Ben Mendelsohn for The King, Michael Sheesby for The Nightingale, and for actress, Tilda Cobham-Hervey for Hotel Mumbai, Magnolia Mameru for The Nightingale, Hilary Swank, for I Am Mother, Balude Watson for Hearts and Bones, and Ursula Jovich for Top End Wedding. You got any favourites out of them? Um, well, Ben Mendelsohn um, in The King, kind of caught me. I, I hadn't 
picked up that he was in that film, so kind of watching that. He he just plays, like, you know, grumpy old men very, very well. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, no, uh, uh, you know, I think Harriman did a great job. He's good, isn't he? Um, Um, I I have seen Hearts and Bones, and Andrew Lurie is really terrific in that. And just even though... Um, I really, really liked Ursula Jovic in Top End Wedding. Belude Watson is like, she's the reason you see Hearts and Bones. She's amazing. Um, she, she is only a supporting actor. She does come in kind of later on in the narrative. She's fantastic. Like you walk away from that film like, oh shit. Like this is all about her. She's incredible. And I just have to, you know, just the... The strangeness that is the actors when you have Hilary Swank. Hilary Swank for I Am Mother, which is not a bad film. It is fine. Yeah, it's fine. But it's it's also like it's it's very typical of the ones that the Australian films that get picked up onto Netflix are these ones that are indistinguishably, you know, indistinguishable from American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you didn't know if it was Australian, you would never pick that I Am Mother is Australian. No. Yeah. No, it reminded me of uh, Alex Proyas. Yeah. And his sci-fi Australian. Yeah. Movies, yeah. And just to wrap up, I just want to give a shout out for there's a, a nomination for Best Production Design, and the films for that are Hotel Mumbai, Judy, and Punch the King and the Nightingale. Um, somebody who's actually worked with um, with me uh, at, at Swinburne with our, our film students is Joe Ford, and she's nominated for Judy and Punch. So, although I'm not, I'm not going to be kind of totally part, like, you know, clear about this, like, go Joe Ford, you're amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And I hope you get, you walk away uh, with the actor award. Um, so I guess you know next time we we pod, we might uh, do a bit of a rundown as to who's going to walk away with the with the awards. And if you've got any opinions about you know who you think should be winning the actors, um, by all means head to our uh, Facebook page at facebook.com slash of cinema and leave us a message there on our episode thread. As usual, each month, we here at Senses of Cinema podcast share with you a highlight from the current month. From film to television to the wider world of screen media, we share with you something that has caught our attention. So, Mark, what has caught your attention in November? Uh, What has caught my attention is a series on Netflix because everything is Netflix today. Um, And it is called Unbelievable, um, which is this... And I have not finished it. So, have you guys seen it? I've seen Mm. it. Okay, I have not finished, but... But I am so wrapped up in this in this uh, mini series uh, with Tony Collette, um, uh, Merritt Weaver, who I've loved since she was about eighteen years old, and she was in a fa- one of my favourite films, a film called Series Seven: The Contenders. Merritt Weaver, you're amazing in that film. She's also incredible mm-hmm. um, in Unbelievable, um, and it, it it's just I guess interesting because. It tells a story, I think, that we've seen a hundred thousand times before about, you know, here's the rapist and all the raping and all of that kind of awfulness. But it is really clear that this is taken from very much a female's position that, that it, you know, I'm being exposed to um, kind of processes that have never been covered before. Uh, because it's always been some dude like, oh, and she got raped and now we're going to find the rapist and, you know, let's go and get a rape kit. Um, now it, it's it's like completely seeing a very familiar story taken from a completely different perspective. I'm loving it to pieces. Can we have, you know, Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver just get their own show and they can, you know, have an amazing TV series together because they are awesome. I love them both. And the show, even though it's really kind of hard to watch, um, it is kind of incredibly well written and beautifully directed, and I'm I'm all about unbelievable. Yeah, so this is um, it's based on a true story yes. as well, um, based on a Pulitzer Prize winning um, article. Article, it? yeah. yeah. Uh, which it, it is a fascinating series. I mean, I guess coming from the female perspective, yes. um, it. It's something that we're far more familiar with, yeah. that idea of the victim blaming and the, you know, the, the key kind of element of this series, which happens very early on, is the, um, the victim being pressured into uh, recanting, going, no, I made it all up, just, just to stop the process and to make it all go away. Yeah. Um, 
and the way that that kind of comes back and all of the different kind of victim statements and the, the different ways that the, the crimes impact. It is a way of telling the story that we haven't seen with all of the crime dramas with, you know, Law and Order SVU that's been running for a decade yep. or more. Um, this way of thinking through that victim impact hasn't sort of been up on screen in the same way. And no. Tony Collette just does such an amazing job. Um, it's great to see that Australian connection up there. Yeah. She keeps kind of popping up in surprising places. She does. Danielle McDonald, who's also an Australian, is in it also. So, mm. yeah, there's a little bit of an Australian connection there. Cesar? Well, I have two very different recommendations. One of them is a kid's cartoon produced by the ABC, which is all the rave here in Australia called Bluey. Oh, yes. It's, Bluey. Uh, no, yeah. We were talking about, you know, like Australian productions and uh, internet, the, like international appeal of Australian productions. Bluey is just beautifully made. It is very distinctly from Brisbane. Uh, I have a few friends in Brisbane, and they absolutely love it. And it's a great show about parenthood for kids. So both the kids and the parents can enjoy it. Um, it's distributed through Netflix internationally, and it's just very uniquely Australian. And it's one of the best depictions of early parenthood that I have seen. It's just a beautifully made show, and it's also a show that's stylistically it looks like it was made to be watched on an iPad or a device. It's just amazing. It is. And um, what I really love about Bluey is when it got picked up for international distribution, there was a question of re-recording the voices so it could be mm. played um, in different countries and um, but with local sounding voices and the production company went, no, we're keeping the Australian accents. Mm. It can go to the US but they're going to hear the Australian voice. So, you know, big kudos mm. to the production company for kind of keeping that, it that is, element because it is, it is such an Australian, yeah. um, as you say, very Brisbane kind of story that it tells, even though it, it's quite universal in its mm. themes. And my other recommendation, I'm Mexican-Australian, so I have an Australian recommendation and a Mexican <laughs> recommendation, uh, is a short documentary, also on Netflix, called uh, Light-Footed Woman which is absolutely amazing. So in northern Mexico, in a state called Chihuahua, there's this indigenous group, the Tarahumaras, who traditionally run ultra-marathons. Like, they run far more than any marathon runner, and they do it uh, barefoot. So they run 50, 60 kilometers barefoot. Uh, the women run with a dress. It's just unbelievable. And uh, they run in the mountains. Oh. The Tarahumaras. So this documentary is... Uh, so is, it's a horror documentary. No, no, it? it's, no, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. My horror. Light-footed woman. I think it's Lucia Light-footed woman. But if you just uh, search light-footed woman, you'll find it. It is directed by Juan Carlos Rulfo, who has a couple of very good documentaries under his, under his belt. And he is the son of Juan Rulfo, who's perhaps the best... Mexican writer in history. He only wrote two, uh, two books, a short story book called uh, The Burning Plain or Genuine Llamas and a novel called Pedro Paramo. So uh, it's, it's, it's a fantastic documentary about an indigenous woman. So if Netflix has done anything for representation when it comes to uh, Latin America, I think indigenous women. First with Roma, which showcased the story of this indigenous woman uh, going to Mexico City to work as a domestic worker. Probably most people have never seen an indigenous Mexican woman in the world. And now this uh, short documentary, which was just released, and it's just beautifully shot, and the story is just unbelievable. It's like this woman running on a traditional dress for 50, 60 kilometers in the mountains. It's just amazing. Wow. So there's my, my two a Mexican and an Australian recommendation. <laughs> well, uh, I'm uh, breaking ranks. I'm not giving an Australian recommendation this time. Um, I'm uh, giving a recommendation for what she said, The Art of Pauline Kale, which is a 2018 documentary, um, but which recently screened here in Melbourne thanks to the Jewish International Film Festival. And, you know, uh, coming out of Sense of Cinema and lover of great film criticism, of course, familiar with the work of Pauline Kael and mm -hmm. just seeing the documentary about her work and her life, it was, it's a really interesting film. 
um, sort of charting the trials and tribulations before she rose to prominence at The New Yorker um, and all the filmmakers that she's very much championed, Brian De Palma being one of these, um, the filmmakers she's very much championed, but also the ones she absolutely ripped to shreds and getting to hear from both of them um, and getting to see some of the correspondence that came through from some of the directors that she was less favourable about. Um, It's a really fascinating portrait of a film critic and an age of film criticism that seems to be disappearing. Yes. Thanks, internet. Mm. All right. Well, thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast and thanks to Cesar for joining Kirsten and I this month uh, on the podcast and thanks also to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Mori, who pulls all the strings in the show and in our hearts. Um, thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast and we will speak with you again next month. <laughs>